0: Well, good morning. good morning. It is an honor and a privilege to get to open the Word of God with you this morning. And we're going to be in the book of Ruth. If this is your first time with us, we kind of do a line-by-line study or most line study through the book of Ruth. And we're, we're going to be picking up in chapter 2, verse 17 today. But before we do any of that, let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing. God, you're so kind and merciful to us. You're great. God, I pray that you would show us how you pour your grace after grace after grace after grace out on us. God, I pray that we would, as Naomi, respond with praise. God, open our eyes to the truth that's in this text. God, and I pray if there's someone here that doesn't know you, God, that you would just gently break their hearts and you would draw them to yourself and that they would today make that choice to love you and to spend the rest of their days with you. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So like I said, we're going to be continuing our study. Uh, The series is called Silence and Sovereignty. Ruth is one of these books, there's not many of them in the Bible where God doesn't speak directly. But what he does do is you see him ordaining and moving the events by his sovereign hand all throughout, all the while carrying out his kingdom purposes as well as providing for his people. So in in our text last week, we see God's sovereign hand move Ruth to Boaz's field. So if you're new to the study, I see a lot of new faces this morning. So I'm gonna to try to give a quick recap as best as I can. Everybody in here is like, that dude's long-winded. We'll go quit. We'll go quit. All right, so the book starts out and Ruth or Naomi leaves with her husband. From Israel to a different place, a pagan place. And while she's there, her husband and two sons die. But the two sons take two pagan wives. And Ruth or uh, Ruth Naomi talks one into going back home. And uh, Ruth, one of the, the the Moabites, one of the pagans, she decides to give her life to God, and she follows Ruth back to Israel. And Last week, we we meet Naomi again, and she's just angry at life. She's angry at God. She wants to be called Mara, meaning bitter. But Ruth, just faithful, she goes and she finds a a place to serve. She finds a place to glean food, and she goes and works in this man named Boaz's Field, and she comes back with all this food, okay? So... Last week, we, she's in Boaz's field, and Boaz pours out just blessing after blessing on Ruth. He feeds her. He gives her physical protection. He tells her, work in my field. If you go in one of these other fields, something might happen to you, but my men will protect you if you stay here. He, he gives her water. She doesn't have to go and draw her own water. And he gives her... The law requires for widows and orphans and aliens to be able to work in your field... If you're a landowner, and you're you're only supposed to get a little, but he gives her so much more than the law requires. And we see that she's uh, that Boaz is this Christ-like figure, and Gr- Christ goes so far beyond the law requires, doesn't he? And we pick up this morning in this new scene a conversation between the bitter-hearted Ruth, uh, Naomi and Ruth, who's just got back from a hard, a hard day's work. So far, Naomi's been blind to the graces that God has given, but now God is pouring on grace after grace and blessing after blessing in such a way that even her hard, blind heart can see it, and she's moved to praise. So the, 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 the what's true and what to do is going to be simple this morning. The what is true is God just pours out grace on us. He pours out grace after grace after grace on us. Grace is we don't deserve. It wouldn't be a grace if we did deserve it anyway. He pours out blessing after blessing after blessing on his people. So what do we do with all these blessings? What do we do when we see all these graces being poured out on us? When God pours out his grace, we're to turn back in praise. It's simple. So the call today is going to be Praise Jesus because of the work that he's done. So let's read our text together. So she gleaned in a field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned. That's talking about Ruth. And she got about an ephah of barley. And she took it and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw uh, what she had gleaned. And she also brought out and gave her the food that was left over from being satisfied. Verse 19. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed is the man who took notice of you. She told her mother in law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name who I work for today is Boaz. Now, and Naomi said to her daughter in law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth, and, and Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they've finished all the harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived there with her mother-in-law. So the first thing we're gonna see is God pouring out his, his grace in, in physical blessings. God's provision is, is on display in such a clear way that like I said earlier, even the bitter blind Naomi could see it. She couldn't deny it anymore. Ruth returns home after a hard day work and it tells us that she's carrying an ephah of barley. And I know we all are up to date on our Jewish weight scales. But the commentators told us that that's anywhere between 30 and 50 pounds of barley. And um, so she carries it home. And imagine this, this little woman carrying this 50-pound sack home. Verse 18 goes as far to tell us, it's, it's trying to let us know the distance. It says, from, from the field to the city. So she this is a feat in and of itself, her taking it home. And... Verse 17, it's very specific what she brings home. What, what would make the most sense for her to bring home is the sheaves. So, you know, um, they didn't have hay balers and they didn't have the, the big combine. What they would do is they would take and cut the, cut the barley down and then they would tie the big things up in sheaves. And that, that's what a sheave is. And then they would go and they would collect the big sheaves, take it somewhere, and, and uh, they would take it to the threshing floor and beat it out, and that's where they would get the, the barley. Well, it tells us very specifically that she brought home the finished product. So for her to carry home 50 pounds of, or uh, a, enough stalks to make 50 pounds of grain... Would have been insane, but another grace is showed in that we can assume that he allowed her to use his threshing floor during the busiest time of the year. So that you, the more you look deeply into this, the more blessings and the more graces you can find being poured out from Boaz. So, verse eighteen, her mother-in-law said to her, uh, said tongue-tied, her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned and she brought out and gave her what food had been left over. You'll remember from last week, Ruth was invited to eat with Boaz and his men. And he gave her so much food, cooked food, that she had some left over. And, you know, she takes it home and she, she gives it to Naomi. Would you imagine in the home of a widow who has just traveled from one land to the other, that there would be a lot of food. Just another grace that cooked food was placed in her lap. She didn't even have to go to the field. It was given to her. Un- under ordinary circumstances, uh, a gleaner, someone who went, the, the widow or the orphan, they would expect just be expected to get just a little bit basically enough to survive that day and maybe a little left over she came home with enough to make a living on that that's how much that's how much grace is being poured out on her and she 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 was blessed exceedingly and abundantly more than she could have ever hoped for or asked for when she went to that field. She went to the master's field empty and came back full. Just like Boaz invited Ruth for her safety and her good to come to only his field, our master is inviting us to his field for his provision so that he can pour out his graces on us. The God who is willing to care for you what he wants from you is your love and what else he wants from you is that you would stay in his field. So what does it look like being in someone else's field? Well, think about this. When, when the world feels shaky, maybe your money's low and your bills are high and you've got an opportunity just arises to do something shady and you do that thing, you let your morals down in that area. That's, that's, that's trusting in another's field. That's working in the enemy's field. Naomi has been working in another's field herself. She's been given to bitterness and making arguments from realism. We see her working in the enemy's field in such a way that she pushes this one daughter-in-law who wants to come back with her back into paganism. Back into, back into darkness. She, she was working in another field. Working in our master's field, it requires faith. Faith requires us to, to step out even when the footing seems unsettled. And I would say most often when the footing seems unsettled. Ruth did not know what was waiting on her in Bethlehem. Ruth didn't know what was waiting on her when she gave her confession of allegiance to Yahweh God. But she stepped out in faith. She didn't know what was waiting on her when she went to this field. Remember, it was in the time of the judges. Anything could have happened to her. But because she stepped out in faith over and over again, God continued to pour out His blessings on her. Work in the master's field, and what you're going to find is undeserved Blessings from our master. Where are you being called to step out in faith? Where are you being, where where is God pulling your heart? Are you following him? Why aren't you following? Maybe you're in a place like Naomi of bitterness because last time you did something, it just didn't work out like you thought it would. There was pain at the other end of it. Church, I want you to understand something about pain and suffering. The New Testament doesn't promise a life without pain. That's a lie from the devil, so that when pain comes, we're like, oh, God must not be in this. The New Testament is written in such a way that says, when pain comes, X, Y, and Z, this is what you do. The Savior experienced pain. James starts, the book of James starts about when you suffer Not if you suffer. There's there's a time when pain and suffering and loss, the, the, the Jesus, he's gonna come back and make all things right. But until then, it requires faith. Because God allowed Naomi to suffer, and let's not make light of her suffering. She was left alone. She lost her children, she lost her husband. She lost all protection and provision. She felt like God was treating her unfairly. But because God allowed Naomi's suffering, her name will never be forgotten. Because God allowed Naomi's suffering, she contributed to the story of Jesus Christ. God sometimes uses our pain to bring about his purposes, and he redeems it for his glory. God uses the pain of Jesus as our suffering servant to redeem us from our sin. By the wounds of Christ, we are healed. By the wounds of Christ, we find refuge. By the wounds of Christ, the wrath of God will not be poured out on you, but instead we get to find the eternal life, abundant life. God allowed Jesus' suffering for the advancement of his kingdom and to save us. A more modern day example, have you ever heard the story of Jim Elliott? He's the one that, if you haven't heard of his name, maybe you've heard this statement. He says, he's no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim went down with a team to Ecuador in 1952 to a tribe that had no access to the gospel. He saw them lost and dying and going to hell with no hope. And the Lord laid it on his heart. The tribe they went to was called the Wadani. And they were known to kill every outsider that had come into the tribe. Jim and his friends knew what they were doing was dangerous, but they felt like God was in it. And they knew what was waiting on the other side of eternity for those people. So after making contact a few weeks by plane, so what they would do is they would fly their plane over. And Nate Saint was a pilot. He would fly his plane over, and it was really cool. He would fly in these real tight circles. And they would release with a rope. And how he would, uh, he, he was the one that created this, this, this way to, to do this, by the way. He would drop by rope in a perfect straight line down, uh, the goods and food and gifts for the tribe. So they'd done this for a while, over and over and over, for months, and they believed that they had made friends with the people. On January eighth, 1956, all five men that were in Jamiliot's group were speared to death on that beach. A day passed, Jim's wife back at base camp was nervous and she got another missionary pilot to go check. And she had the coordinates of where the plane was going to be, and they found on that sandbar the plane as well as the bodies of these missionaries. Would you say that that was a waste of five lives? Did God waste their pain? No, the story made it back to America very quickly. And it sparked one of the greatest mission movements in modern history to South America. Jim's wife, Elizabeth, their daughter and Nate's sister moved into that village. There was no promise of security. They moved into that village with these very men who killed their husbands and brothers and fathers. Soon, that tribe was converted. God used their suffering for the advancement of his kingdom. A few years ago, I visited Jim's home in Ecuador. It's still there. Now it stands like a, a monument and a museum. Thousands of people come through every year and hear the story of a God who uses suffering to reach the lost and dying for His glory and for our good. It seems crazy to us that Elizabeth Elliot stayed. I mean, what's the argument? If you were her parents, what would you have told her? <laughs> They're going to kill you. You should hate them. This is what they did. But instead, she didn't work in another's field. She stayed and she worked in the master's field. And the eternal yield is now immeasurable. There are generations of Christians in this tribe and the surrounding tribe because of their gospel witness. Because she stayed, we tell stories of the great work that God has done to encourage believers all over our land. You are no fool to give up what you cannot keep, to gain that which you cannot lose. Ruth, she stepped out in faith and found tremendous blessing, and her mother in law was blessed by her faith. And because she met Boaz, we are now all beneficiaries of her faith because Boaz fathered Obed, and Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King uh, David, and King David. Set up the monarchy for King Jesus. Your faith will benefit others. Elizabeth Elliot's faith benefited others. She stepped out in faith. Generations of Christians in that tribe. We are blessed by it. If you step out in faith, there are blessings waiting on the blessings waiting for you and there are blessings waiting for those who are in your life. So let's look at the next piece. We'll we'll look at verse 19. God's grace poured out, not just in physical blessings, but by drawing Naomi's heart back. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. All right, so could you imagine being Naomi, right? Naomi's a Jew. She knew the Jewish cultures and the practices. Ruth is a Moabite. She really didn't other than what Naomi's told her. So Naomi shows, or uh, Ruth shows up with all this food. And like the, the rapid fire questions coming from Naomi, like, Hey, what did you do? Where did you go? How did you get this? Where does this come from? Who's going to be mad at us? Baby, you didn't understand. You're only supposed to get a little. This is a lot. Like who lets you glean cooked food? That's not a thing. People don't let you glean from their table. And Ruth in a very excited way, she says, the man's name is Boaz. This is the hinge in the story. This is where Naomi's heart is is turned back to praise. She she you can see her change in real time because of Ruth's faithfulness and seeing God's grace being poured out on them. Naomi moves from being bitter to giving blessings. Naomi moves from not having faith in God's loving kindness and, and for her to having hope in his loving kindness for her. She's moved from being in a spot of despair to a place of hope. Naomi's eyes are no longer blinded by her bitterness, but instead they're overflowing with praise and blessing for others and to God. God's gentle kindness drew her heart out of despair. So the first thing we can notice about the statement that she makes, she says, may he he be blessed by the Lord. She's asking for divine blessing of Yahweh God on Boaz for his kindness. And if you look at your text, uh, most Bibles have Lord capital, some don't, so this only works if yours does, capital L-O-R-D. And when it's capital L-O-R-D in your Bible, that's how you know that it's talking about Yahweh. Um, That's that's that that, that name that Moses uh, gets from God in the burning bush. That's just a a little cheater right there. So every time you see capital L-O-R-D, that's what it's talking about. And she's, she's asking for the divine blessing from God. And after blessing Boaz, she praises God. She says this, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. God's kindness hasn't forsaken the living or the dead. That's, that's a bit different. She's, she's changed her tune a little bit. Let's see what she's already said in the book. So I learned this phrase the other day. They call it finding the receipts, like in text messages. So let's, let's find the receipts of what she's already said. So uh, 113. this She says, My daughter, for it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. That doesn't sound like what she just said, 120. She, she goes on, she says, Do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, for the Lord Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity on me? In a moment of repentance, she just lays out into praise, doesn't she? Naomi expl- exclaims of God's kindness and that he's not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi previously said that God's loving kindness towards her was gone, but now she can see it. If you're, a, if you're an underliner, look look right there where it says um, kindness. Underline that. That's the word hesed. If, if you want to like... Uh, the, the Hebrew is a beautiful language. It's like guttural. It's like in the back of your throat. Uh, we say hesed. It's like <laughs> hesed. <laughs> you got a got a to say it right. I can't but we're going to go with hesed. So God's hesed is one of the major themes of the Bible. The Hebrew language um, doesn't have as many words as the English language and some of these words are just jam packed with meaning and The goal is not to get political. It's just to show you how this works. Like, if I say Republican, a ton of ideas run with you that way, right? If I say Democrat, a ton of ideas run with you that way. Same thing here. Like, it's hesed. This word is just jam-packed with meaning. Hesed is God's covenant loyalty or a love that goes beyond the call of duty. So whenever, whenever we're seeing uh, them talk about God's kindness in this with this um, Hebrew word hesed. It's talking about His covenant loyalty, his, his faithfulness. Hesed is the combination of love and commitment and generosity, and all these things. All it, it's defining God or describing God's character uh, to those who have entered into covenant with Him. This hesed is 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 love that that's setting out to to love those who are in covenant covenant regardless of how those people are responding so we see when uh naomi in this passage has been faithless god has been faithful to her the whole way right that's 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 what we see in the old testament when people finally understand that god's grace through his covenant faithfulness it it exists despite their failures it will turn their hearts to praise. i tell you, um, Hebrews presents Jesus this way. You know, I, I've always heard that, you know, we separate ourselves from God when we sin. That's just not simply true when you're a Christian. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Hebrews presents it like this, that when, when we sin, Jesus presses in. It's his nature to press in. The reason I think that it feels like Jesus is so far away when we sin, it's because we've turned our face. But if you would just turn the words repent, you would find the face of your Savior just looking you in the eye. He's not going anywhere. He's pressing in when we sin. Think about the story of Adam and Eve. After they broke God's law, God did not destroy them though he did punish them. Instead, he gave them promises in Genesis 3.15, promises that they didn't deserve, that there would be one coming that would crush the head of the serpent. There would be one coming that would fix what they had just broken. Then, again, God in his loving kindness doesn't mean he doesn't punish us also. But we see him kick them out of the garden. And remember, he clothes them with animal clothes. Well, how do, you get, how do you get skin from an animal? you got to kill it. We see God sacrificing and clothing them and hiding their shame, none of which they deserved. Fast forward to the story of Abraham in Genesis 12. God calls Abraham out of darkness. He calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, out of this pagan land. And he makes a covenant with him. That he's going to give them the land of Canaan, that he's going to, he's going to make them a great nation, and that he is going to, he's going to bless those who bless his family and curse those who curse his family. And you see God being faithful to that. And you also see Abraham operating without faith over and over and over. Not trusting that God will actually do it, trying to take, take matters into his own hands. But just because Abraham fails doesn't mean that God's Hesed commitment fails. Abraham's descendants, just like Abraham, they were kind of sketchy characters. But God doesn't leave them or forsake them. Instead, God shows them great mercy and patience and compassion. And that's, that's being worked out in each of the stories of the Old Testament. The Old Testament's not about how awesome these guys are, but how awesome God is. I grew up hearing the Old Testament preached in a way that made much of the characters and of the things that I'm to emulate. That's moralism. That's, that, that's legalism, just repackaged. That's the stuff that we just walked out of Galatians talking about. The story of the Old Testament is not about how good the people in the stories are, because most of them are royal failures. Instead, they're the stories, they stand as a picture of God's Hesed love and commitment and generosity towards a group of fallen people. That's the story of the Old Testament, of how loving our God is. Jesus is the ultimate picture of God's Hesed. We see his love and commitment and generosity played out through the person of Christ towards us, this fallen people. Jesus is the picture of love because his love was what motivated him to come and die for us, not anything that we had done so that we could live with him forever. Jesus is the, the picture of commitment. By stepping out of heaven, Jesus became a man and he lived a perfect life and he committed to keeping the law. He committed that whenever Satan tempted him, that he didn't falter. He committed to sitting on the cross, staying nailed to that cross, being speared until the bowl of wrath of God was completely poured out. He drank it till its last drop. He committed. He could have called an angel army to get him down. But he committed for the glory of God and for our benefit. Finally, you see his hessed generosity. Jesus did not have to do any of it. Jesus is God. Jesus is the treasure of heaven. And he came to earth. And we, he, he, he became what we are. So we could inherit what is his. We are adopted as sons and daughters of God Almighty to reign with God forever. It's generosity. The generosity of God in the person of Jesus Christ is unmatched. God made salvation totally based on the work of Jesus, not on our works. And outside of faith, there's nothing we contribute. And even in faith, you you see the one guy pray in the New Testament. He says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, the Holy Spirit empowers us to have faith. The generosity of God opens our eyes to our sin. The generosity of God shows us the beauty of His Son. The generosity of God is that He sends His Holy Spirit to indwell us so that we can love Him and that we can live for Him because we can't do it on our own. God is so generous to us, God gives us all these blessings because of his Hesed covenant, faithfulness. Naomi says that God's Hesed is for the living and for the dead. You can rest in knowing if today you choose to enter into covenant, if you choose to enter into faith with Jesus Christ, that he will never leave you or forsake you, and he will be faithful with, through the, this life, and he'll be faithful in giving you abundant life in the life to come. Naomi's heart of bitterness when she saw God's kindness turned to praise. If you're in a place of bitterness, I would challenge you today to open your eyes and count the blessings. Remember that old song? Count your many blessings, name them one by one. Bitterness cannot live where there's praise. That's how you fight. When, When you find bitterness in your heart, The the language in the New Testament is that we enter into the fight. You have to fight the lies by acknowledging and proclaiming the praise. It's not saying the suffering's not there. It's not saying the pain's not there. It's not saying these things didn't happen. But it's saying, I trust in my Redeemer. God is showering you with praise, or with kindness, and you should turn that kindness back into praise. Let's look now at the last, the last part. God pours out his grace in providing a redeemer. Now Naomi said to her, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers, underline redeemer. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep um, close to my young men until they've finished uh, the harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with these young women, lest another, in another field you be assaulted. Like They've mentioned that quite a few times, just by the way. Like That seems like something happening a lot. Verse 23, so she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and the wheat harvest, and she lived, uh, lived with her mother-in-law. So now we're going back to the conversation with Ruth and Ruth's asking, you know, or uh, Naomi's asking, "Where did you go?" And Ruth said, "It's Boaz. I went to Boaz." And like you can see those wheels in Naomi's head start turning. "Oh, I mean, you didn't say Boaz." He they she she starts she starts playing the matchmaker in her head. "Oh, Boaz, Boaz, is, Boaz is a kinsman. Boaz is, is, is from our clan. Boaz, he could be one of our redeemers. Verse 20, Naomi said to her, this man is a close relative of ours. What that means is just from the clan of her husband, one of our redeemers. Now, unless Naomi stopped and explained this to Ruth, this cultural thing would have just went right over her head because she's like, yeah, he's a really nice man. He invited me back to the field tomorrow. But Naomi knows they need a redeemer. They, the, the only one that could redeem, like I said, is that close relative. This word redeemer in the Hebrew is gil. And there is provision in the law for the gil in, in Deuteronomy 25.5 that Boaz happens to fit. Boaz, their kinsman, is of the same clan of Elimelech and he can redeem their property and he can redeem their family name. Boaz was a long shot, but it was really Naomi's only hope for not living a life destitute and poor. And, you know, Ruth had sold out. She'd given everything to come with her. So this was was Naomi's chance to to bring them out of this situation. So I want you to show, show you real quick what, what the qualifications of a kinsman redeemer are. So there are four. You had to be a blood relative. You had to possess the necessary resources. Basically, you had to be rich enough. You had to be willing to, to pay the purchase price. So not only did you have to be rich enough, you had to be willing. And then finally, it wasn't good enough just buying paying for the land, you had to take the bride as your own. So, spoiler alert, if, if you've not yet re- read the book, it's kind of on you. It's a couple thousand year old book. But Boaz, he fits all these categories. And Boaz in chapter four will take her as his own bride and will pay the price. And I, I, I end with this every time because chapter four sets this up. And Ruth becomes the, the mother of Obed, and Obed becomes the, the father of Jesse, and Jesse becomes the father of King David, setting up the monarchy, the line by which God is going to bring King Jesus. This is all pointing to Jesus. These Old Testament stories are not just stories. This is where God has woven a tapestry of events together to bring about his ultimate kingdom purpose of bringing the God-man to earth and pointing us to how he's going to do it. So I want to show you how Jesus perfectly fits the qualification of the kinsman redeemer. We'll do this quickly. First, he had to be a blood relative before you could even think about redeeming someone. Jesus became like us. God became man and dwelt among us. Emmanuel, God with us. Philippians 2, Jesus steps out of heaven and becomes like us. He was born of the Virgin Mary, both being the Son of God and Son of Man. God promised to Eve in the garden from her line, from the line of the woman, He would bring this snake crusher that would make all things right and destroy the ancient serpent. Jesus became like us to redeem us so that we could be like Him. Second, The kinsman redeemer had to be rich enough. Boaz could not have redeemed Ruth if he could not pay the price of the land. Uh, I mean, we're celebrating July 4th this week. For us to get freedom, I'm, I'm I'm a nerd. I love American history. Lots of people died. But none of them were rich enough to buy our pardon. None of their their lives could could make us free from the grip of sin. Jesus had the necessary resources to bring us real freedom, to redeem us. Hebrews 9.22 says this, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sins. The system that God set up was where goats and bulls and the shedding of blood. They didn't have the resources to redeem. You need to understand that your sin is so grievous against a holy, just God that the only adequate payment was the blood of God himself. And Jesus climbed up on that tree and poured his divine blood out for you and me, that if we enter in by faith, we could be redeemed from our sin. Finally, the, the kinsman redeemer had to be willing to pay the debt. Jesus' motivation was for love. He was willing to pay our debt. He was more than willing to pay our debt. For God so loved the world that He sent his only Son. Love motivated him. Finally, the kinsman redeemer had to be willing to take the bride. I think this is where so many gospel conversations fall flat. Believe in Jesus and don't go to hell. Jesus, he doesn't save us from hell, he saves us to himself, he saves us to relationship. He saves us to be his bride, that we would enjoy him and love him forever. Though he does save us from the wrath of God. Ephesians 5.25 shows how he loves his bride. It commands husbands, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that. He might sanctify her. That means make her holy having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus, Was willing to make us his bride. He wasn't just willing to pay the debt. He was willing to take us as his own. And he doesn't just take us and throw us in the corner like, ah, you're saved from hell. It's good enough now. He presents us to himself. He presents us to the Father without spot, without wrinkle, as holy. He presents us holy as he is holy. We Because of Christ, because we've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, we are clean. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. In Christ, God pours out on us grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And He tells us that there's nothing that can separate us from His love. So here's the call this morning it's plain after looking at Boaz and seeing the reflection of Jesus Christ, his Hesed kindness, his, his willingness to be our redeemer, our only response is praise. Our only response is praise. Jeff's going to come forward and we're going to sing a song of praise. And I want to challenge you, if you're one that's in here and you're just wrestling with bitterness because life feels unfair, it feels like God's been unfair to you, I would challenge you to do what what we see Naomi does here. She sees the blessings. She's counting the blessings and she's turning those blessings around and praising. Your your battle for for fighting the war of bitterness is praise. Turn, Turn those praises to God. And then Finally, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I want you to understand this. That at the end of this life, that wrath of God that I was talking about, it's waiting. It's waiting for you. Because God is a just God and you've broken His law but he's made a way through his Redeemer. If you would put your faith and trust in him, you would find salvation today. I'm gonna to be right here during, this, during the, the, the time of worship. I would love to have a conversation with you about what it means to follow Jesus and how you can call out to him for salvation. The Bible says today is the day of salvation.